as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Gabe Cazillo, most recently known for his works on APAL. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Gabe. Gabe, how are you, man? Uh, I'm good. Uh, yeah. Keep it, just, keeping pretty busy? Yeah, I, um, I'm at the NYU Game Center. I taught a class this morning. Um, and I've been uh, just hanging out and helping people. I started a new game. You know how it is. Yeah, it's just the, the day in, day out. So you've got a bit of a teaching background as well then? Uh, yeah. Of sorts. Of sorts. Uh, I'm an adjunct uh, professor at NYU, um, and I teach like game development. Uh, I've got a, a class called Action Game Studio, where um, I teach some people how to make 2D action games, um, and that's pretty fun. Uh, but right now, I'm just teaching like intro to game development to yeah. like college freshmen, and uh, yeah, that that's. That is what it is, you know. It's hard. Yeah, it's awesome. hard to it's hard to learn how to make games. It turns out. Uh, I'm sure it has its challenges. I mean, you and I, I mean, totally different spheres, but you and I are both teachers, so it brings its own challenges. For me, it's maths, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's same same ballpark of trying to teach people technical things. It's hard. Yeah, it yeah it definitely has its challenges. So this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to game developers from all around the globe about their journeys and how they've come to where they currently are. And we'll kick things off with the same question that I always ask. Gabe, what was your first gaming experience? What were those early days of your gaming life looking like? Um, well, I wasn't allowed to have a console at first, until at least until my parents got divorced when I was 13. Okay. Um, so my early days were all... PC and a little bit of GBA stuff, but like the games that stick out for me when I was a kid are like Commandos Two. Played like just yep. a shit ton of Commandos Two, <laughs> um, which is yeah. Uh, I still I still have fond memories. I'm a little bit scared to go back, but oh, I was about to ask are they uh, any of those the sort of games that you might go back and visit from time to time, but. Apparently that's you've just answered that. So yeah, yeah. It um, I definitely went back and tried some Commandos stuff. Like I tried playing Commandos one a couple of years ago, and I do think I mean Commandos two still looks great when I've like watched videos of it. Like the visuals definitely hold up, but I'm not sure if the if the gameplay is there. There was a Commandos inspired game called. Um, Oh, what was it? Like Shadow Blade? You know what I'm talking about? Tact something. Um, I mean, I, I can't say that I was the biggest Commandos person, so I don't necessarily. I can't think of the. There was a, a, a There was like a indirect or otherwise. There was like a. There was a game inspired by Commandos that came out a couple of years ago. Um, maybe like two or three years ago that I meant to play, and I played a little bit of it, um, and it didn't bite me, and so I. I don't know. At some point, I feel like I need to go back and 
check it out and see which parts are actually good and which parts are where see what holds up and what doesn't yeah a part of me wants to like try to make a game in that style at some point and see if there's a cool way to do it if i could come up with a cool way to do it well we might have to dive into that sort of thing a little bit later is there a (laughs) was there a game at all that you can recall that you identify as maybe the game that inspired you to try out game development yourself Oh yeah, totally. Or was it just um, the culmination of of many years? Uh, yeah, it was. It was Nidhogg for sure. Oh, okay. Um, I like um, because Nidhogg was in an arcade cabinet at the game center when I was a student before it actually yep. came out in a real way. Um, because then they had commissioned it for No Quarter here, um, and it was just like so fucking cool. And I was like a fencer or I had recently been a fencer at least at the time. And it felt like it was just like so smart and so stylish and like so it was just so much better about the way it communicated mechanics in the game than anything else I'd ever played. And it also just felt like something that I could have done, like it felt doable, you know? Yeah, uh, it didn't seem like you would need to know you would you wouldn't need to be that technically advanced to make a game like that. Um, yeah, understood. And uh, at the time, I was in film school, and I was kind of sick of it. And generally, the film industry was getting me down, at least as it was presented through film school. And um, I just kind of decided to spend a summer. Uh, trying to learn how to make games, and that's oh, where okay. I made Foiled. Um, and yeah, luckily my brother is a computer science person, and just was around and willing to teach me, and like you know, get frantic, uh, go like hang out messages at one in the morning when I don't know what I was, when I'm freaking out about some bug and don't know what help to do. Help me! Help me! Help me! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It was like mostly that for the entirety of foiled development. And then it continued for the basically throughout APAT development. I mean, I still do it. I still run into um, problems that I don't understand and have to raise a flag and come running to my brother to have him explain things to me. Um, so, yeah. what was it about film school that didn't quite grab you in the end? Um, it just kind of became it- clear that like there's no way to do it in a, in like uh, at least there's there's uh, excluding like extreme outliers like like Shane Carruth Kar- making Primer on like at t- five or ten thousand dollar budget like there's very it doesn't didn't feel like there was a way to make anything that you had creative control over. Um, just that too was, many fingers in the pot, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was like, it was going to be good. And like anything that was uh, like, I just knew that what, and what they try to communicate in film school is uh, probably what you're going to do is you're going to pick a niche of some kind. So like being an editor or a sound guy or a lighting guy or something. And then you're going to spend the next five-ish years uh, after graduating, getting coffee for people who are doing that kind of job, and then 
after five years, maybe they'll let you do it. And then you have to do it on like terrible movies and terrible TV shows that you don't care about. And then maybe someday when you're like 45, you'll get to do something that you're creatively invested in. And so it was a little bit that, of that whole, no, you've got to earn your stripes thing before we'll let you get involved. That was the bit that put you off. Yeah, it definitely wasn't appealing. And also I just, it was hard, I think for me to have such an intense reliance on other people. Um, yeah. Just because uh, it's, you know, it's hard. Like editing, I think was my favorite part because it was something that I had total control over and could just tinker with forever um and uh it just felt like there there to make a good movie you need so many amazingly talented people and also so much money and also so much luck and it just it it didn't relative to indie games like it, it didn't make a lot of sense is it kind of that that powerlessness in so many other ways that kind of is the issue? So you've, you've got your little space where you can really be the best you can be and, like you said, tinker, but then in all these other spheres, you've got really no control over what's going on? Yeah, I mean, you have some, some control, but you're so limited by all of the uh, people that you're working with and also all of the equipment and the time and the locations and all this stuff. Um, and I liked it. Don't get me wrong. Like, there's a reason I went to film school, and I really enjoyed making short films, and I, you know, worked with a lot of really amazing people. But um, it just, I didn't see a clear path to a life that I enjoyed. I guess. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So then, how did that transition begin to occur? So, I mean, you you spoke about how Nidhogg was a massive influence. Was it the sort of thing where you saw Nidhogg and thought, "I need to go and do that straight away," or was it just something something lingering in the back of the mind where you eventually decided, "I might make this jump"? Or, um, you know, like I had seen Indie Game the movie at some point, of course, and I also I took uh, this Games One One class with Frank Lance and he did a really great job of like selling games and he just like had a lot of, he just has uh, so much doubt in a way that I found just extremely appealing. Like it felt like a space where nothing is that nailed down and we're still figuring it out. And uh, there's a lot of exciting work being done right now. And that was like a sharp contrast with film school where it was a lot of reverence for these masterpieces that were made in like the seventies and eighties. And this feeling of if only you could maybe make something 70% as good as what's already been made, then we'll have done a good job. Oh yeah, Um, I see. So the difference between that and then kind of, getting to pioneer and forge your own path right. by the indie and, dev space. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that I think is just down to Frank as a human being, uh, being very good at like that particular kind of thinking and like being very open to new ideas and very much, uh, like a questioning person. Uh, yeah. and I think that same class could have been taught in a way that was very nailed down and rigid and just trying to, explain to you what, it, what had come before. Uh, 
but yeah, that was super inspiring to me. Um, that sounds, that sounds great. Yeah, it was really, it was really great. Uh, so it was kind of those two things and like seeing Nidhogg, um, that just made me want to try it. And then like I sat down with Game Maker and I like took to it pretty quickly. I was like really afraid of trying to learn how to program because just because of that, that learning curve. Yeah. Like my brother had tried to teach me Lisp when I was like way too young. I was like eight or something. And it scared me off of the whole idea. And like, I kind of ripped myself off as like, I'm, I'm never going to be able to understand that stuff. And that's his domain. And I'm the dumb brother. Um, and, or I'm like the artsy one. I get to do the artsy stuff and I'm not technically minded in that way. Um, but like once I actually got into it and once I kind of got over the hump, it was like, I had a really big appetite for it of just like, like I've just loved the feeling of like understanding how, how things work in video games in a more deep way. Like I just remember being super excited, like learning that like when you shoot, like you make a bullet and the bullet flies and then you check when the bullet hits a thing and then you like change a variable on the thing that it hits. And it's like, that was just like, Oh shit, that's cool. And so how does that adjust your, the way you, you know, you've, you've played plenty of games over the journey up to that point. Um, yeah. how does that influence the way you look at games from that point onwards? Cause prior you, you know, you're speaking about how you're the, you've got more the artsy sort of perspective there. And I'm assuming that you'd look at a lot of titles there through that lens. How does that change when you all of a sudden you, you understand more about what's going on behind the scenes and the programming, the coding that sort of goes into those things and how it works? Does that have any sort of bearing on the way you look at other titles that are releasing? Uh, I mean, it definitely does at this point, but it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty slow evolution of how I look at stuff. Just like, cause you know, I've been making games for, um, I don't know, I guess around six years at this point. Um, yeah. And uh, like at this point, it feels like it deeply, deeply informs the way I look at games and informs my taste in a way that is maybe not always ideal. Like I really like games that uh, just feel a little bit broken or feel a little bit like anti-designed. Uh, in a way that is very like refreshing to me because I deeply understand and am tired of a lot of the traditional ways that games are structured and created. Um, and I don't know if that's always a, a good thing. Um, and I think it, I definitely had this experience at film school of like oversaturating myself with film and with like overthinking uh, how films are constructed in a way that made me like really uh, lose a lot of my enjoyment of them. Uh, yeah, that okay. is like come back to some extent. I like can definitely watch movies now and enjoy them in a way that for a while, like I, I was too deep in to really enjoy them. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I mean, you, you can hear that sort of thing all the time where you get a little bit too close to something and all of a sudden it, yeah, it loses pulls, all of it pulls you away, pushes you away a bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't think I've reached that point with games at all, partially just because it's such a giant category of aesthetic objects. Um, and again, like, I think you've got so much uh, creative control over it versus what you did before. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 
but yeah, it, it definitely did inform the way I, I look at games now. But I, I can't totally, I haven't really thought about it enough to put it in concrete terms exactly the way in which it informs that, I guess. No, that, that's, no, that's fine. So you spoke about Foiled there briefly. How did that come about? Um, well, it's I literally, at, I see some influences. There's certainly, I think, a Nidhog influence there. Yeah. I, um, I think of uh, even with how fast-paced it is. I think about you know Towerfall in some ways and those sorts of things as well. Yeah, um, well, it's a local two-player cop game. It's, it, I mean, it's it's a blast to play. I tinkered, I've tinkered around with it a little bit actually, well before I even realised that it was you that made it. Um, I'd messed around with it a while back and and really really quite enjoyed it. Um. But yeah, how did that come about? Um, it was like uh, I had just like finished the a round of Game Maker tutorials. Oh yeah, and then I like I did some Game Maker tutorials, and then I decided to remake a game called K Space Duel, which uh, was like a two-player spaceship fighting game uh, that was a Linux game that me and my brother played when we were kids. Um, and I thought it would be like fun to remake that just because like we had played it a bunch and we wanted to play more of it and it was no longer accessible. And also it's like a very, very simple game. It's like there are two ships that are orbiting a planet and you can like shoot bullets that also over the planet. And also you can lay mines. Um, and that's about the size of it. Uh, so it seemed like a manageable project. Uh, and so I finished that, which, I don't know, took like a week or two. Uh, and then I was like, okay, uh, time to make like an original game. And uh, and that's where Foiled started to come Yeah, into- Foiled was just like, I, I was just like, I was just trying to find a mechanic. I think uh, my friend steak was over and I'd like showed him what I'd made in game maker and was just like, okay, well let's try to make something else. And then I, I don't know. It was just like the dive, the diving thing, like a platform where you like trying to dive on each other's heads was like the, the start of the game. And, uh, it was just like me trying to implement that and then adding to it over and over again. Uh, it turned out to be way, way harder than I thought. Um, and it took a really long time to get it to feel good and get the collisions to work and all that stuff. And um, the basic idea was that it was like a mashup of Super Meat Boy and Nidhogg, uh, because those were two games that I really loved at the time. Fairly and, prominent titles at the time. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, it just made sense as like a simple game to try to make. It would be a mashup of those two things. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it came together pretty quickly, especially relative to Ape Out. Um, I had a high school friend who I knew, um, had been making games much longer than me. He was making games in high school, uh, named, uh, Aaron Tagaris. And he, uh, ended up making all the art for the game, uh, which, and he was also like there in the trenches, like helping with all the design stuff throughout. Uh, which was really helpful. And uh, we ended up making the majority of the game over the summer um, in a single summer. And 
then I came back to the game center and uh, I got uh, uh, set up in an independent study with Bennett Foddy, um, who had just arrived at the game center that semester. It was his first semester here. And um, he ended up uh, working with me to like finish the game, which took about two months in the independent yeah, okay. study. And he like, we played a, we played a lot of games and he just like opened my mind to a lot of concepts that I wasn't aware of. Uh, all all the possibilities. Right. Exactly. And like some of it was, uh, just like I had gotten the game as far as I could get it. I like at that point, like it really was the perfect time. Cause it was like, I'd been working out really hard for like three and a half months. And it was at a point where I just didn't know what else to do to it and how to make it better anymore. And that was like the perfect time for him to like come in and like really uh, expand uh, just the possibility space of what games, how to make games and just like how to think about games. Like, like the idea of juice wasn't a thing that I was aware of at the time. Like there were just all these concepts and all these like frameworks for thinking about how to make games that I just like soaked up really fast and it was just the best. It's still a lot to take on in a very short space of time though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was a very intense period and then releasing it was extremely intense. Um, so speaking of release, you got it out on to itch.io. How was the reception? Uh, the reception at the time, uh, it was primarily, it wasn't on itch originally. It was just, we, we made a site for it that is now oh, yeah, okay. defunct. Um, but it was like really way better than I was expecting. Um, like there were a lot of people talking about it and playing it. And um, like an important thing to me was like the Idle Thumbs guys, because uh, I had been like listening to Idle Thumbs for many years and was very into the way they thought and talked about games. And like they streamed the game and talked about it on the podcast and that like, was a huge deal for me and yeah, I bet. then it like, got nominated for student IGF as well. Um, and like, it was just a huge amount of positive feedback for this like kind of whirlwind six months of work. Uh, it must it be was, nice and validating and make you feel like you made the right choice to get into that space in the first place. I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was weird. I like didn't really know how to process it at the time. Um, because everything was so new and I think I like hadn't fully made peace with like, this was the thing for me. Like, this is what I'm doing with my life now. And the positive feedback very much felt like, oh shit, this is it. Like, oh, I'm doing this now, I guess, uh, as, as my main thing in perpetuity. Um, which when you're in the midst of this whirlwind that was a six month period in the first place, it just makes things even crazier i'd imagine yeah exactly um so yeah it was it was uh it was interesting and it was weird and um i i basically started what would become about two weeks ish after releasing the game because like i was still in an independent study with bennett and i had to continue to work on something um, and no rest for the wicked. Right, exactly. Uh, and <laughs> originally, part of my, I mean, my plan for Foiled was I was going to work for way too long on it. 
and uh, like make a single player mode and like do all this stuff and release it as a commercial game. And uh, at a certain point, Bennett just said that I should release it instead of doing that. Um, and just release it in the state that it was in at that point because we were having a lot of fun and we kind of had reached the end of our ability to improve it from the space that it was in. And in retrospect, at the time, I wasn't sure if that was the right choice. Um, but in retrospect, it was just like obviously a great decision because um, I don't think like foiled makes sense as a game that you spend that like many years on it felt like it had reached the point of like maturation where um it made a lot of sense to release it and like all of that validation i think was really important to just my formation as a game designer at the time um, yeah, and I mean, I, I hear those sort of stories where people, whether whether they're in the AAA space or indie space, where they're talking about how any changes I'd make beyond this point are so minuscule and so minute that it's actually better if I just get the thing out the door at this point because it's just not going to have a large enough bearing to justify the time that I want to spend on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I think it was it was definitely the right call. Um, yeah, and then and then I started what would become Apat later later that month in like November 2013, and then fell into that hole for five years. It seems like. Well, I mean, it was a now, now that the product's out there, it was clearly a well well considered uh, move and time well spent. Yeah, yeah, it turned out so, it turned out okay. So, how did the idea for Apat actually come along? Um, it was originally. Um, going to be a uh, time-traveling stealth game, of okay. course, uh, and so I just started like trying to make a top-down game in Game Maker, and uh, kind of the, the time-travel stuff fell away pretty quickly, but the, like, the top-line goal of the project from the outset was, like, how do you make a, like, a top-down game that like, has a sense of physicality and feel to it um because that was kind of my shtick with foiled was trying to make it feel as good as i could make it feel and i really like doing that and i like tuning all that stuff um and there were a lot of top-down games coming out at the time and doing really well and that were interesting um but really had no sense of physicality to them so like how in miami and monaco and teleglitch all were coming out right around that time and were all pretty huge games and all have extremely basic um, movement and feel to them. Uh, so, and I never really played anything that was top down that like had, had a sense of weight and like a sense of embodiment. Um, and so the original idea was that you were going to just be, um, moving along walls and like pressing yourself up against walls and peeking around corners and stuff. And so it was going to be like the walls of this facility in the stealth game were kind of like the platforms and a platformer and you'd like move between them and push off them and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I follow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, at a certain point, like you were grabbing the walls and like peeking around corners and that's the way the peeking mechanic worked. 
But if you have a grab button, then you need to be able to grab dudes, and then you can push dudes. So now you're grabbing dudes and pushing them into walls to kill them. And uh, at that point, it and made all- sense. Like, hey, yeah, I was gonna say, all of a sudden, it's sounding like the ape out that I actually am familiar with. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was still a stealth game for like a long time after I decided it was going to be a gorilla, and it took a long time for the aesthetic to come together. And like the whole vibe of the game didn't really fully exist for, I don't know, probably like a, uh, a year of development time or so, or maybe oh, okay. even more. Um, not that I was like, all, like, not all that time was super well spent, like some of that throughout development. Development has been somewhat porous throughout the five years, um, with the possible exception of the solid... The last year of development was pretty solid. Um, In terms hard, of that time commitment? Yeah, just like hard work the whole time for the last year. Um, but the rest of the time was somewhat porous in that, uh, like when I was a student, I was I would get, there would be some semesters where I wasn't doing really much on it, and I was focusing on classes and stuff. And then after after like getting funding for it and all that stuff, there were just periods of time where like my life wasn't going well and I was depressed and I just wasn't getting very much done. Um, and, uh, so it was like over five years, but it wasn't five years of solid, solid dev time. Um, but, uh, that first, that first year it was kind of lost in the, in the wilderness. It was still like I was still figuring out what it was for that whole. Yeah, trying to first find its year. identity. Yeah, exactly. So you spoke about funding there. When, where, how did Devolver actually come into the mix? Um, well, so f- the first thing that happened was I got into the incubator, the NYU Game Center incubator program after graduating. Yeah. Um, which gives you a little bit of money and kind of this space to just only focus on making the game uh, for the whole summer. So the summer of 2015, like, was great. I It was, like, really hard work, and it was, like, a lot of smart people around me, and the game, like, really came together. And, like, by the end of the incubator, it was, like, really solid, and, like, it, it was... That was, like, the first time that it really was what it was going to be basically like it was still going into the incubator finding its voice and i was still very much figuring out exactly what the vibe was and exactly how it was going to be and coming out of the incubator it felt like i knew what ape out was and it and then it just worked to get it done yeah exactly like i think the, the vibe of the game now is like a very mature version of what the vibe was at the end of the incubator um it, it hasn't really changed direction at all since then. Um, and uh, at the end of the incubator, I pitched to IndieFund, and I got IndieFund, uh, and that was supposed to fund about a year and a half of development. And then a couple months into that, uh, I pitched Evolver, and they liked it and signed it. And um, then I took too long to finish the game after that. <laughs> Look, I mean, these things have their challenges, and obviously you spoke about how that last 12 months was pretty full on anyway, so... Yes, yeah, true. Uh, and I th- I'm sure with the reception, which has been very positive and 
small plug for my own, my own works. Please go check out player2.net.au. If you're listening there, go check out the review for uh, Ape Out. I had some glowing things to say about it. Um, so you spoke about the aesthetic there. How did you kind of land on what that was? Because it's a very striking look for the game, um, both in terms of the visuals and the audio side of things. How did you kind of land on that? Um, well, so the, the visuals were... Um, I, I mean, there were a couple different steps into into getting to what it looks like now. Um, uh, the first thing was probably like the procedural animation. That was like something that I started doing very, very early on um, and just made sense as like an approach to animation where like I didn't really want to learn to animate and I thought that the procedural animation would be fluid and cool and not that hard. It turned out it was very, very, very hard um, to make it look good. Uh, but one of the constraints on it from the outset uh, was that the ape was going to be all one color because it just made that animation a lot easier to sell. Yeah. Um, because you're not seeing all the individual bits move around. You're kind of seeing this, this mass of ape and it's, it just looks better when you can't distinguish the parts from one another. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's still enough there to be able to identify limbs and all, what, what everything was anyway. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the beginning of the aesthetic. And then I just started like looking into, and like, this is all with Bennett, like in an independent study, uh, like just looking into like looks that would make sense for that. And, that would be achievable by me who didn't know how to do art and never really done art before. Um, and so I started looking at like a lot of Saul Bass posters and Ali Moss posters, and then like the Saul Bass intros, um, and like other animations that were inspired by those and started playing with shaders and grime shaders and all that stuff. Um, and it just kind of evolved from there. And like at a certain point, um, I had to make a trailer for the game and I was like totally obsessed with the song. You've got to have freedom by Pharaoh Sanders at the time, which is the credit song in the game. Yep. Uh, and it, uh, I put, I put, I cut a trailer to that song. Um, and that was like the first trailer for the game in 2014 and it like really kind of pulled it together and like that all of a sudden, like that was the through line of the, of the game. And like all of my aesthetic decisions from that point forward were kind of checked against the vibe and feeling of that song. Um, and, uh, that also informed the visual style and the and the audio in the game, of course. Um, and then they all start speaking to one another, and you exactly. get the final product. Yeah, uh, and it also like it made sense because so much of what the game was about was like about this improvisation and reactivity, and then and like that was something that I was already interested in and already going for, and then the music really felt like it jived with that and. Uh, that musical style also really matched very well with that Saul Bass jazzy poster style. And so I think to some extent I just got very lucky or also I was, 
the one thing I would give myself credit for is that I wasn't stuck to anything that wasn't working. Um, I, it felt like it took a long time to find all the elements uh, to, to, that would fit together in the way that they did. Um, and then once they had all come together, it like really locked into place and really felt like a solid, cohesive aesthetic object from that point forward. Um, and that, I think, really came together during the incubator. And during the incubator, I was also just like, when I was walking to the subway every day and like on the subway, I just was like listening to that song on loop over and over and over again, and, like pumping myself up and like just like living in that feeling, basically. Um, I mean, with the whole with the whole beat and theme of the of the song and the game itself, I reckon that'd be a pretty good, fun space to exist in. I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, it was like a really hot summer. It was like very intense and very exciting, and it was great. Yeah. Were there any other games out there or other pieces of media that, I mean, obviously we've spoken about in terms of the audio sense there, but uh, were there any other pieces of media at all that informed the direction you went with, with the game? Or was this very much your vision and just trying error, seeing what worked and what didn't? Um, well, I mean, definitely Whiplash and Birdman coming out around the time that I was figuring out the, the musical vibe of the game was definitely influential, right? Like it was definitely, both of those movies are like really, uh, really makes you, make you like dr- drum solos, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was definitely like at that point where I started like ripping drum solos from YouTube and putting it in the game and playing with that. Um, and then it was after the incubator that Matt Bach came on, board and um just like i had had like a very rough sketch of what the vibe was like i had like ripped drum solos from youtube and i had like cymbal crashes when you killed people and that was the extent of the sound design basically like there were gunshots and footsteps and stuff but they were all terrible it was all just kind of like a rough sketch of like what the game would sound like and he like came in and did just really some amazing groundbreaking work to fill out that system. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was there very anything lucky that you that. brought with you from Foiled that really, like, in terms of some of the design lessons and those sorts of things, was there anything that you brought with you from, uh, from Foiled that you feel like translated across to what you did in Ape Out? Um, surprisingly little, actually. Um, I really felt like, starting ape out i was like almost starting from scratch oh, okay. um i mean they are they are quite different games at their the, core but, yeah they're, um, they're very different games and also i switched engines because i i started in game maker and then after like a month or a month or so of work i decided okay i'm going to do unity because unity is like a big boy engine and i had had some nightmares like releasing foiled and all these weird technical issues that people were having that were game maker related um but like it turns out you don't really need to know how to program that well to make stuff in game maker and to make stuff in unity especially like programming heavy stuff like what i was doing you really need to understand how to program in a pretty thorough way and so there's a lot of lessons with that big jump yeah exactly like there was just a long period of time after switching that i just like could not get what I wanted on the screen, on the screen. Um, yeah, okay. And uh, I also just, like, 
you know, I never took any math. And so like I had to learn all of like vector math and all this other stuff to try to learn how to make objects move in a way that made sense. And it was all extremely different from Game Maker. Um, and the stuff that I think translated was more of those high level design frameworks that I like acquired working with Bennett in the independent study. Like I knew how to do stuff and I knew about screen shake and like, and I knew more about what made something feel good. Um, but for the most part, it was, um, it was a very, very different process and a very, very different game. That's right. Um, and the brutality of the game. I, mean, I say brutality, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking grabbing a guard and launching him into the wall or, or shoving him into a wall and basically just this little explosion of blood. Um, how did that come about? How did you land on the... I mean, I'm, I'd imagine there's some sort of balancing act as to what is too much and what's too little. How did you kind of come to that conclusion as to where that sweet spot was? Um, well, it was something that I, I remember saying very early, like even before I started um, making it. Uh, like after Foiled, I just like wanted to make like a violent game. Um, and like not for any particular reason, just like as one of the ways of changing stuff up because after you work on a game for a long time, you just want everything that's the opposite. So like I changed perspective and I changed the style and I changed everything. Um, yep. And yeah, I think finding the tone uh, was hard um, just because like I wanted the violence to feel a certain way. Like I wanted to feel brutal and intense and kind of overwhelming, but also not gross in any way. And like, I want it to feel joyous, I guess, and not like it's trying to represent some kind of real true violence, if that makes sense. No, I understand that. Um, yeah, uh, like you talk, uh, you talk about the, the the kind of joy in it there, um, and I I think about with how the final product works anyway, and obviously you know it would have looked very different for you at different points through development, but I think about how like the the clap of um, of audio as as a body slams against the wall there, and it kind of I, I look and I go oh you know as as there's this little little explosion of blood, but what I'm focusing on is how those two aspects the audio and then the visual representation work together and it doesn't suddenly feel like this over the top violent thing. It's, it just feels very arcadey as a result. Yeah. Yeah. And that was true very, very early on. Um, and I think also something about, uh, just kind of overdoing it. I was trying to like overdo it in a way that was silly instead of gross. You know, it's like the yeah. amount of blood and like the, the fact that people are just kind of blood water balloons in this world. Like, it's it's meant to be um, it's meant to feel arcadey and meant to feel like a heightened reality, if that makes sense. Yeah, understood, and I think you a hundred percent succeeded in that space. Thank you. Um, what were there any? So the game is currently available on PC and Switch. Mm -hmm. uh, were there any particular challenges or any sort of excitement or anything when it when it came to bringing the game over to the Switch? Because I know that. I mean, I go, I go to things like PAX and I speak to developers and I ask, you know, what, what have people been asking? What have they been talking about? And they always say 
the number one question we get is, is the game coming to Switch? When's it coming to Switch? Blah, 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 blah. You were there day and date. So what sort of challenges or other kind of came with releasing the game on the Switch? Um, yeah, it was really, really hard to get it to work on the Switch. Um, In what ways? We, so, like, we got a porting house, and I kind of thought that meant I didn't have to worry about it that much. When in fact, I had to worry about it really a lot. Um, And like just getting the game to run at 60, it's not solid 60 on the Switch, but it's 60 a lot of the time. Um, And getting it there, getting it even to hit 60 ever took like a pretty Herculean effort. And um, my brother works at Unity now and... The only reason that uh, it can run at 60 on the Switch is because he was able to have Unity source access and give us a hacked build where he was exposing functions to us that would allow us to do calculations faster, basically, than we, we could have uh, otherwise. Okay. Um, Just another space where who you know really, really helps. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it was like a solid... Uh, couple of months uh, of crunch at the end getting that to work um yeah like i i basically i took maybe one day off between like christmas and uh like a week before the game came out more or less oh wow um and it was just like all day every day trying to get it to work better on switch and it was just like it meant that i had to rewrite whole parts of the game from scratch and like just do things in a very different way. Then so I had just done one of those things, cause you were speaking about how you had, you know, a, there was a porting house there. Is it just, and yet you still had to take on a lot of the work. Is it more that they, they kind of finish the job, but you've ultimately got to make these decisions still with the switch in mind. Um, no, I mean like they had done the initial getting it to run on a switch stuff. They like, but like the version that they that they had uh, when they kind of had finished their work was running at 15 frames a second a lot of the time and was crashing a lot. And oh, okay. um, so we, I mean, at that point, basically we just did everything. Like we we made all the, we just took over more or less. And um, it it was like a very it had from a it had to be rewritten from a very uh, deep level basically like all the way the blood is rendered is totally different now than before we started the switch port because um, it had to be because it the switch can't deal with the number of particles that like on PC we could just have blood particles hanging around forever everywhere in the level like hundreds of thousands of them and it was like no issue and on switch you can't do that so like we had to more and more more demanding on the system exactly so we ended up having to like make a giant 2d array of textures where the blood like splats and then it oozes for a couple of seconds and then there's a camera that comes by and takes a picture of the blood and bakes it to the texture that sits on the floor and then deletes itself um so it's like that level of like we're just having to like invent whole new ways of doing things because the switch can't handle the way that we were doing it before. Um, and like between the version that we had when the game was 
basically like in September, we had basically like wrapped up the game, not totally, but like it was, it was the game that you experience now, um, minus just a little bit of polish. Um, and between that September build and the final build of the game, uh, it probably got, mm, I'm like at least 10 times faster on the CPU. Uh, okay. So that was, that was really hard. (laughs) Turns out. Um, but yeah, so that, I mean, that was a couple months of, of my life was, was doing that. Um, Worth it at the end of the day though? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it actually, in some ways it was good because, I mean, it was extremely stressful, but it was, uh, I just always had something to do. Like I was, uh, I didn't get to experience that much like release lead up like idle anxiety. Cause I was just like constantly yeah, okay. having my hands just kept busy. busy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, so as we start to wind things down, um, are there, have there been any like really valuable lessons or experiences that really lingered with you throughout your entire development journey so far? Yeah. Um, I think the main lesson I would take from this, um, I mean, I think there are a couple, but one of them is like, I just never want to work on a really large scale project by myself ever again. Um, because like, that's what I was trying to do post incubator for a long time. And it was, it was just a nightmare. It's like really easy to like, just go down rabbit holes and get exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy to like, just not have structure in your life and just have be depressed and all this stuff. And I really like, it was because Matt and Bennett came in toward the end and Ben ended up doing all this work on the game and it just helped me finish it basically, um, in a million different ways. And it was like, just feel like you're coming up for oxygen again. So exactly. And it's like, uh, I'm extremely lucky that I like happen to be friends with these two, like uh, two of the most competent, talented people in the, in who are making video games right now. And that they were, were down to, to work on this thing with me. Um, but like, I don't know how I would have finished it otherwise, really. Like, I don't know if I could have gotten out of that state by myself at all. Um, yeah. And like, I, I don't think solo work is bad. And I, I just think that it should never last more than six months is my new, is my new heuristic. Um, and probably not be your full time job. And, uh, I also just like, as a result of that process, like have learned how like the value of collaboration and what that means in so many different ways. Um, and hopefully how to do it better. And, uh, that was definitely like the, the main takeaway for me and the main way I'm going to change my behavior going forward based on this experience yeah that makes a lot of sense have there been i mean i'd imagine there's a few have there been some particular uh treasure memories or highlights that have really lingered in the same sort of way i'd imagine maybe uh, the release of apat would yeah, be one of those the release was pretty good it was like a huge relief uh, i was happy that people liked it and that the game seemed to work pretty well for most people um which was you know 
I wasn't sure about it. Validating. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really good. Um, and, uh, I mean, the incubator was great and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I definitely like enjoyed big parts of the process, but definitely the whole back half of development was tied up in just a feeling of being weighed down by this thing and not knowing if I could ever finish it, Um, which just made it, you know, less enjoyable overall. Um, Sort of that low lows, but then really high highs sort of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was, there was a week we went up to, um, Frank's Frank has a, like a house, uh, upstate. And like, we went up there and like, we did a week long, like finish the game jam in August of, of this, of 2018, uh, which is like where so much of the game start, like just really gelled and came together. And that was really awesome. And it was like every night we were like playing the game on a big projector and like watching Frank play it and stuff. And like, it was really feeling like all of a sudden the game is like coalescing very, very quickly. It was like a really awesome feeling. When all these separate pieces start to speak to one another and exactly. Yeah. All these merging systems finally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So casting our eyes forward a little bit, what does the future hold? A for Ape Out, B for you. Um, well, for Ape Out, I don't know yet if there is any future. Uh, I think there's a chance that um, it's that's the game, and uh, I'll continue to patch it and support it and stuff, but um, it's like, it might just be, uh, let, that's just a one-off, and it's Ape Out. Uh, is and- there any intention, and I'm feel free not to answer this if you can't yet, uh, is there any sort of intention to bring the game across to the PS4 or the Xbox One? Um, not this second, but, I mean... Plans may- can change. Maybe, yeah, plans can change. And also, like, we still haven't decided whether we're going to do any major updates or anything to the game. Like, all that stuff is, is up in the air, and, like, at this point, I just want some space and like i want to take a few months not working on it before i make any decisions um i don't blame you whatsoever yeah exactly um yeah right now i'm just binging Sekiro. you know also you're just uh putting yourself through a bit more torture huh yeah exactly (laughs) that's a lot easier than making ape out though ironically i'm stuck on an on an ape boss right now oh good i'm glad these things are coming full circle yeah (laughs) um and in terms of beyond beyond APAT, you were talking before about how you've got some ideas about what's next. Now, I'm not expecting you to uh, divulge those. It's obviously way too early. But yeah. um, So, is there there's just a little whiteboard somewhere that's got a few little notes and ideas that you've been scribbling down? Is that yeah? I, uh, how I imagine it. I started a new a new little thing that um, I'm working on with Bennett and Matt. That um, it's not clear whether it's going to turn into anything we release. But um, uh, it's just like an, uh, it's like a palate cleanser sort of project. It's like very very small, very very small scope, and like no I think apes, no apes in it whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and like that's what I want to do for a little while, uh, for sure. So I'm just gonna like I'm still teaching at the game center, so I'm gonna c- 
continue to do that. And then uh, hopefully I just get to make some small games, at least probably for the remainder of this year. Um, and uh, also I'm working on the, there's a foiled arcade cabinet. That's like a, it's like a foiled remake that I've been kind of working on the side uh, with uh, another professor here, Charles Pratt. Um, and it's now in a bar in North Carolina and uh, it's making some money there. So we're probably going to make some more cabinets and expand it a little bit more. And so um, that's feeling good. It's like, that's like a nice side project to have. Um, and like between that teaching and making some, some new small games and uh, you know, having some time to take some days off uh, it's kind of my plan for the rest of the year at least. And it's, that's pretty, it's pretty good. I'm pretty happy about that. Well, US listeners, please make sure to go out and go try out the foil cabinet. And if you want to make one and send it down to Melbourne in Australia, I won't object either. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll let you know. Um, so finally, uh, before I guess we do some last little last minute plugs, uh, is there a dream game that you wish you could have made? Um, no, anyone not, not through really. the entire oh. history. Is there one oh, that you just yeah. love to see your name in the credits? Oh, uh, I was just, when I was at GDC, I was, I got sucked into a conversation about desert golfing and I remembered how much that game is the best video game. Um, I kind of wish I had made desert golfing, but I think everyone wishes they had made desert golfing. So maybe that's not the best answer. Um, I mean, it's perfectly okay. Yeah. uh, At least right now, if I had to pick one right now, I think it would have to be that one. That's fair enough. Um, And so as we close things out, if people want to uh, go and pick up the game, for starters, Ape Out, where should they go? Um. You can play it on Steam or on Switch. Um, yeah, both versions and are good. <laughs> Thank yes. God. <laughs> yes, I did, I, did, I did mess around with both. They both they both check out. They're great. Yeah, I recommend um, playing on a, and, pro, a pro controller on Switch, though, if you can. That's my one, yeah, that's so my one recommendation. That was, that was one thing I actually found with it. I was, I was using the Joy-Cons initially, and I felt like with... With kind of these very rapid movements, like I feel like, am I about to snap the stick here? Yeah, which is, exactly. no, fault, which is no fault of your own. But like, am I about to put too much pressure on this thing and it just gives? So I flicked over to the the pro controller as well. Yep, um, definitely a good piece of advice there. Uh, and obviously, if you're listening, check your local pricing guides for for the game there. Uh, if people want to k- get in touch with you or keep track of what you're up to going forward, where should they go? Uh, you should probably follow me on Twitter. It's just at Gabe Cazillo and. Um, my DMs are open, so you can message me if you want to get in Which touch. Which is exactly how we managed to tee this up. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you again for that. Yeah, of course. So, Gabe, it's been fantastic having you on the show today. Uh, thank you for sharing your journey so far. Um, yeah. And listeners, thank you very much for listening. Thank you. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Gabe's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.